0: I'll be back. I'm gonna make him an offer, can't we? Cannonball! I'm Batman. What? Oh my god! They killed Kenny! The force is with you. Batman! He's the lion! Hey, Hope! I am the danger. Please stand clear of the doors. Oh righty. Woohoo! Avengers! <laughs> Assemble. What's up, everybody? This is Pop Culture with the Captain. I'm your host, Captain Carlos Motavo, and yes, I'm back. Today I will be discussing the releases of two great trailers, the first being Zack Snyder's cut of Justice League as well as Emma Stone's Cruella. I will also be discussing the anticipation in regards to the King Kong vs. Godzilla movie, my opinion of what's happening lately with WandaVision. And it's a war season, so I'll be discussing two movies that are currently available on both theaters and on streaming websites. Judas and the Black Messiah, and one of my personal favorites from last year, Promising Young Woman. Now, let's get to it. To start off today's episode, I'll start off with Zack Snyder's Justice League trailer that was released on Valentine's Day. In case you don't know why we're having this revisit of Justice League And from the 2017 version, let me give you a brief history. The history is that back in 2017, Justice League was having a lot of production issues, many of which is due to the creative differences from both Zack Snyder and Warner Brothers. And by the time that they were editing the movie, tragedy happened to Zack Snyder in which his daughter passed away. And because of the situation, he had to leave the post-production duties and left all the helms to Joss Whedon, a.k.a. the director of the first two Avengers movie, as well as the creator of shows such as Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Firefly. So, for, so while Zack Snyder was coping with the recent loss, Joss Whedon took over the post-production. But while the post-production was happening, they decided to do some reshoots in order to bring the movie more lighter, comedic tone. And when they did that, they had to deal with notable changes, most of which from the 2017 movie were the um, the comparison between a darker and lighter tone, adding a little bit more humor, and most notably, Superman's mustache being CGI because during the time when they did the reshoots, um, Henry Cavill, who plays Superman, had, was filming the Mission Impossible movie, Fallout, and his character had a mustache. And because he was filming those two things paramount literally told Warner Brothers that he cannot shave so they had to digitally remove it in the most uncomfortable <laughs> moment in the entire movie and so when the mo- the 2017 movie was came out and it was a disaster both financially and critically most of which it didn't make that much money so by the time the movie was released um they didn't make money Um, It was considered one of the worst of the DCEU movie. A lot of changes had to be made. And so on and so forth. Basically, we were possibly not getting another Justice League movie. But, lo, behold, we have this fan base in which they all believe that there's a cut, the original cut from Zack Snyder. It created such a social media um, phenomenon that people really wanted to have that cuts so the hashtag release the Snyder cut was born as well as groups and um social media campaigns petitions to bring Zack Snyder's original cut which basically is his vision for the original movie was before Warner Brothers and Josh Swedens took all of the stuff from post production year by year rumors became actual Um, There's been teases from the director, Zack Snyder, as well as the original stars. And um, one of the most unbelievable thing was that during the 2019 New York Comic Con, um, a fan paid uh, money to have a billboard on Times Square uh, with the classic um, hashtag known as Release the Snyder Cut, and thus created the stir of people wanting to see this cut of Zack Snyder. And then came a year later after that, Zack Snyder, after doing a virtual screening of Man of Steel with Henry Cavill, they both announced that they're going to do the Snyder Cut. And thus, the dream of the Snyder Cut has become a reality. That's the story of the Snyder Cut and how we've gotten into this point with the new trailer. And for me personally, I feel that this trailer is very exciting and it felt Like, this is a complete different film than what it was in 2017. Now that I talked about Justice League, I'm going to talk about the trailer of Cruella. The the standalone movie from the classic um, villain from 101 Dalmatians. And I got really impressed with the trailer. I felt that it was, the tone felt more darker and more serious. And I felt that this is a great progression for Disney because... It felt more like a thriller type um, feel in which we get a sense of Cruella's descent to madness, as well as having a more adult type of theme with the movie. Like, you have her walking around with a huge bottle of whiskey. You have her going incredibly insane with a fashion catwalk. You have shots in which, this is my favorite shot, in which she walks into a party and she lights up a flame and turns it to a... She burns her dress into, in order to reveal her um, red dress. I thought those, that's very more um, serious and very different from compared to what they did with their first um, Disney villain standalone movie with uh, Maleficent. And I felt that Maleficent did a good job in humanizing her. This trailer basically just shows her descent to madness. But the problem is that I have a feeling that Disney might um, humanize her. And that's the problem. That character, there's nothing about her that can be humanized or can have a redemption arc. The reason is that she basically kills animals in order to get their skin or their fur to create some fashion like outfit and stuff. And There's nothing about that that is more humanizing. She she feels she's cocky. She's insane. There's a point about her where she has no remorse of her actions. And the fact that they're going with um, bringing this origin story live action, especially with the incredible Emma Stone, I feel that they really need to stick the landing and bring in that darker tone and not humanize her in any possible way. And it's great that we're having the movie has some great cast in it, such as Emma Stone, in which I feel that it's perfect for her, um, as well as the appearance of Emma Thompson and Mark Strong. I feel that those supporting characters can bring an element to um, the evolution of Cruella. And I just hope that this movie goes the way it's supposed to go. And please not make her humanized. And there's a potential, I read this rumor somewhere in which this movie is a prequel to um, Glenn Close's version of Cruella from the classic movies from the 1990s, in which it was one of the very first um, Disney live-action movies before it became more popular recently. And I just hope that if this is true, then I feel that this is going to be a great thing, especially... Because Glenn Close's um, Cruella portrayal is super underrated. And to think about it, she was basically uh, this the very first Disney villain that I can think of that was being portrayed live action. And Glenn Close, like always, always kills her part in the movie. And I just hope that this follows with Glenn Close's Cruella Deville. But I feel that the trailer is great. It has some great shots. It felt more sinister. It felt more chaotic. It felt like what Krilla represents in this chaotic, psychotic, animal, cruelty, like villain that we basically became we were afraid as kids. Like me personally, I got super afraid of Krilla DeVille when I was a kid. And this movie just shows the madness of Krilla from the shots, from the tone, from the camera work. And this is a great trailer. I just hope that this trailer can follow up with the movie. And I hope that the movie does a great job. About a month ago, Warner Brothers released the very first trailer to Godzilla versus Kong. And my God, I cannot wait for this movie. This is literally the clash of two of the most iconic monsters in film history. On one side, who have Godzilla. Literally, the embodiment of what a movie monster is supposed to be portrayed. This super humongous lizard, in which it's indestructible, super overpowered. And on the other side, you have Hong, the king of Skull Island. The monkey that basically went to New York and destroyed the, basically the whole city before being gunned down by planes. And now... You have these two monsters battling out in the big screen. So this is going to be epic. F- and this is going to be the first confrontation since 1963 in which their first like fight happened in the titular King Kong vs. Godzilla. But now this is going to be a different experience. Because ever since they started the whole monsterverse, because this is what they labeled it the MonsterVerse has become more of bringing those monsters to life in the most epic way possible with cutting-edge visual effects, breathtaking like cinematography, and stuff. For me, Godzilla Godzilla King of the Monsters, which is like the last movie, was beautifully shot, especially with the um, color schemes, especially with the blue, and the fights between Godzilla and King Ghidorah, Ghidorah um, the appearance of Mothra. I thought those visual effects were amazing compared to what it was back in the day because back in the day they basically just put a guy in a suit and they just battling out like um they just battled the monsters was just basically uh, just two guys battling out like having um hand fights and stuff like that and it's a great progression like we went from there from back then to now in which the visual effects has evolved exponentially from and from like the first Godzilla movie, when we first see Godzilla, we I was in like jaw dropped, intimidated. I felt that that Godzilla was scary and stuff. And then you have Kong, Kong Skull Island, which is the movie that came out in two thousand seventeen, in which Kong is like this huge. It's gotten way bigger compared to the other Kongs, and this Kong is more like, like, like I believe. 50 feet tall or possibly more and this guy is just throwing a freaking palm tree in the middle of the freaking um, helicopter he basically kills off like a bunch of monsters in his path and then in Godzilla King of the Monsters Godzilla is facing not one but two or three more titans and monsters in the most epic way possible and I feel that these visual effects has evolved exponentially and I just really Cannot wait to what they're going to do with this movie. And however, despite the best, the most amazing visual effects, they really got to work up on the story. And I say that because their story, they're bringing more emphasis on the humans and less on the monsters. I say that because in 2014's Godzilla, I've checked it out and Godzilla only appeared in the movie like for only 8 m- minutes combined. But for this Godzilla movie, um I'm very I'm very keen on the human side. I want to f- want to like be in totally invested of what they're going to do with the monsters, especially with the potential rumors that Godzilla is being controlled by Mechagodzilla. And yes, I predict that Mechagodzilla will appear in the movie. And there's going to be stuff about the movie where I'm going to wish that ain't true. But I have a feeling that it's going to happen. And for me, the trailer did a great job in not revealing much. It's just two monsters battling out. And that's how a trailer should be. And it's a spectacle. You have explosions. You have Kong and Godzilla fighting over a naval ship for crying out loud in the middle of the ocean. And... The one thing I'm super afraid is with the with what they're gonna do with the fights. I have a feeling that in Godzilla, when Godzilla fights Kong, not the first time, but like in the second or the third time, they're gonna have a big reveal or something that they're gonna that there's a that Godzilla is being controlled by Mecha Godzilla, right? Like I mentioned before. And then Mecha Godzilla is the reason why he's orchestrated the whole fight between the two monsters, and they have that moment when they're like, "Oh, we're not enemies anymore. We gotta work together and stop Mecha Godzilla." And that's gonna, I'm a, and that's the what I call the Marfa situation. You know how in Batman v Superman, Marf, um, Batman and Superman are battling out, and all it took for them to stop and become super buddies is when Superman calls, tells him to save Marfa. I'm super afraid that they're going to have the Marfa effect on this movie. I, it's a possibility that it might happen, but I just hope they don't do it. The one thing I really, really wish is that once they beat Godzilla, they fight it out, and then we're going to see who's the victor. I just hope that it doesn't lead up to that whole Marfa situation. And this is the question that I bet everybody's asking me. Who am I rooting for? Godzilla or King Kong? Whew, that's a tough one. King Kong, bro! Well, as my cousin just openly expressed, I'm going for King Kong. Yes, he might get his ass kicked, but I've always been a fan of King Kong. Um, I'm a huge fan of the 2005 movie from Peter Jackson. And even though he's probably, like I said, he's going to get his ass kicked by Godzilla, there's a possibility that he might win. And if that ever happens, I'm going to be happy. A lot of people are going to complain. But at the end of the day, I'm just expressing how I feel. And I feel that I'm rooting for the underdog. And that's King Kong. Ever since the show debuted in January, WandaVision has stolen the show in terms of storytelling. Especially with what they're going with the new phase for the MCU. Each episode, you get a sense of what is going on. And each episode, you leave up with your jaw drop or having thoughts in your head of asking the questions of what the fuck is going on. This is the kind of show that where it gives you a sense, like a little taste of what is happening. But then when you're about to have a big reveal or something, you're left waiting for more answers and you have to wait till the next episode and the next episode. And that's something that is basically what a TV show should be, especially with the anticipation of watching every week. WandaVision has everything. It has surprises. It has action. It has drama. There are moments in the show where you get a sense of Wanda's descent into madness. Basically, Wanda has gone through a lot of shit ever since Age of Ultron. She lost her brother. She basically got kept held prison because she didn't want to sign the sokovia courts she basically became a runaway labeled terrorist because she, because of that because she escaped prison she lost the love of her life she basically disappeared for five years only to come back and then living in a new world the avengers are basically this like disbanded or no longer in active duty because nobody knows what happens after an endgame of what happened with the team but Wanda has gone through a lot, and then she does the recklessness of stealing um, Vision's corpse and in the sword facility and basically bring, going to a small town in New Jersey to basically control the town, bring a barrier all over it, and control and manipulate the people in town into having her own fantasy-type sitcom from classic 1950s, 60s, and 70s sitcoms. And I love the fact that the first three episodes were just bringing that kind of like nostalgia in it, especially from those tributes in which they basically dedicated on shows such as Be Wished, I Love Lucy, The Brady Bunch. And those episodes were a good way to start the show because you get to see this whole like type of like generic sitcom vibe. But then when the, each of those episodes end, you have a sense of going to more of the real of what is happening outside of the town in which people are trying to figure out what the fuck is happening with Wanda? Basically, Wanda is either... This is what I believe in. This is one of my theories because I got a lot of theories. The first theories is that she has gone mad and her only way to trying to like no longer have a sense of pain or grief is by, manip- is by having her own fantasy sitcom with the lost love of her life. And she bec- this is her Descent to Madness in which I read an article that she- this show basically is going to lead to her role in the Doctor Strange sequel becoming supposedly one of the main villains of the movie. I'm going to feel bad that she's a villain because I feel like she's a character that is a poor soul. But in terms of storytelling, kind of makes sense. She went through a lot of stuff. And like I've mentioned, she went through a lot of shit. And this is another reason why she's going to become a bad guy. And another thing, theory, is that she's being manipulated by Mephesto. Um, Mephesto is one of the most um, recognized Marvel villains, especially with the whole overall type of progression that they're going with the multiverse. And Mephesto is trying to manipulate her into stealing Vision's body and holding captive an entire town. And the only one reason why I believe Memphis was into this whole situation is because of the surprise surprise return of Quicksilver but not just the Quicksilver from the original, from Age of Ultron. This is the Quicksilver from the X-Men movies played by Evan Peters. That was a big surprise because I didn't expect that they were going to do this soon. I thought they were going to wait for the, Spider-Man third, the third Spider-Man movie. Or they're going to... I thought they were going to do the whole multiverse storytelling. The third Spider-Man movie. Or the Doctor Strange sequel. But I feel that this is a really good way to introduce the X-Men characters from those movies into the show. Because those characters were, are well-casted. Michael Fassbender, McNeil, perfect. James McAvoy as Professor X, phenomenal. And like you have Nicholas Holt as Beast, super underrated. And I feel that they shouldn't recast those characters they just bring the multiverse into swing and just having those characters into the MCU. And thus, because of having those characters in those movies, especially with the cast from the Fox movies, there's no hassle of recasting it. You have those guys who already have a well established already real well recognized with the characters. You basically just have to introduce them into the whole multiverse concept. Similar to just having Deadpool in the MCU now, where we have Ryan Reynolds and thank God the movie's gonna be rated R. The one thing that is heartbreaking is the fact that Hugh Jackman as Wolverine won't possibly never return. Because for first, he basically decided to retire the character. As in like he's never he's no longer playing the character after the incredible payoff in logan and in that and when you put it in that in that work in that way when you put it in that way logan was a proper send-off to wolverine especially for hugh jackman but on the other part he's wolverine is now back in the mcu and we could have a lot of potential stories especially with hulk um possibly iron man if he ever comes back joining the avengers There's a lot of material that it could do with the MCU. I just hope that Wolverine in some way or manner gets into the MCU. I pray to God that Kevin Feige or someone in Marvel Studios try to convince Hugh Jackman to come out of retirement and come back as the Canadian mutant Wolverine. And besides the whole fact, I feel that this show, WandaVision, has done a great job of not introducing Introducing the multiverse, but also with the characters and the progression for what is about to come in the new face. Because game may be the perfect ending to what was perceived as the end of Marvels, but it's only just the beginning. Because there's a lot of stuff that they're gonna go with, and WandaVision is the first step towards a new face. I feel that this show is great. You should watch it if you're a Marvel fan. And if you're not a Marvel fan and are and just watching the movies, I feel that you should take a time to really watch this show and try to see what they're going with later on, especially with the upcoming movies and TV shows. Well, the time has come for award seasons. And this year is a completely different way. Because of COVID-19, award ceremonies have either been postponed are presented in a different manner. Events such as the Grammys and the Emmys were basically held virtually online, in which the hosts might are in physical sets, but the nominees are basically presented on like from video footage from from sites such as Skype and Zoom. So, for the net, the first step for film award season is the Golden Globes, in which it will happen on the last week of February, the first time in a while, because usually the Golden Globes is being held on the first, like first two to three weeks of January. But because of the COVID-19 pandemic, it has been delayed and has been delayed now. And there's been new rules and regulations in which the rules are that any movies that have been released from, any movies from 2020 that has been released before the last week of February are eligible to participate in the, Awards contendership for the Oscars this year. And so far, the Golden Globes, the Screen Actors Guilds Award, and Director Guilds Award have been have established their nominations. Out of because of the whole pandemic situation, there are some movies that are available on streaming websites, and that there are some that haven't been released yet, but will be released in theaters and on streaming websites. It's just a matter of just looking up the schedule and stuff. I stumbled upon two movies that are nominated for major awards, um, but mostly in in Best Film and Acting and Directing. Those two movies are fantastic in terms of storytelling, um, acting performances, directing, cinematography. And these two movies are Judas and the Black Messiah and Promising Young Woman. Both are currently available at theaters and streaming sites. For in the case of Judas and the Black Messiah, it is only to be streamed at HBO Max. While promising you a woman, you can either rent it in iTunes, or you can get it at Vudu, Movies Anywhere, or or anywhere that you can basically rent the movie and watch it. I'm going to start out of the two with Judas and the Black Messiah. For this movie, I watched it in theaters. And... To say the least that this is a, the movie is about the story The story is about Fred Hampton, an important leader of the Black Panther Party in the 19, in the late 1960s in which he became a revolutionary um, leader for the Black Panther. He's been trying to um make a lot of changes both positively for the black community especially in rural Chicago while at the same time facing a lot of like Um, backlash and racism from not only the town but also the U.S. government in which they label him as a terrorist and it's about most of his life up to the point where he's been but it's mostly about his life up until his death at the age of 21 when he's betrayed by one of his members um, Bill O'Neill in which he is a FBI informant that was forced into joining the Black Panther in order to have his record clean and start a new life, and it has Bill it has Bill O'Neill infiltrated Black Panther and f- basically giving the FBI information, becoming an informant, and not only that, but slowly trying to f- slowly seeing his um him having full regret of betraying Fred Hampton. And this story is something of an incredible triumph in terms of, in like, powerful filmmaking, especially with bringing political social commentary into a film. Um, it's incredible that this movie from nineteen sixty nine, from the that takes place. It's incredible that this movie takes place in nineteen in the nineteen sixties, and this is coming in the, in the late sixties, in which both Malcolm X and Martin Luther King just died. And those are two incredible figures that are trying to bring change for for civil for civil rights for the for African Americans and stuff. And what makes it more impacting is the fact that because of their deaths, thus came the Black Panther Party. And the Black Panther Party was there's some I don't know much of the history of the Black Panther Party, but from what I've seen from the movie, um Fred Hampton was the kind of leader that was trying to unite Chicago from the lower communities, from gangs, from, um, from gangs from Puerto Rico, from white, from black, trying to unite in order to bring out um, educational um, curricular activities for children, bringing lessons, and trying to unite lower-class Chicago into one singular, like, group. And the U.S. government especially with the FBI, are con- are labeling him as a terrorist and they're trying to denounce him. They're trying to frame him because he's. they view him as a terrorist and a bigger threat to their national security. So they basically fabricated stuff such as for arresting Fred Hampton for two to five years because he stole $7,700 do- worth of ice cream, in which it's true. Or the fact that they're trying to um criminalize and make the black panthers look bad and there's elements where i really can't go deep of how i feel about the black panther but i feel that in the movie they go very in depth of what fred hampton was trying to do and how the u.s government were trying to silence him and not just silence him by just going to jail they orchestrated a plan to kill him in his own house with his pregnant wife at his at his bedside and it just demonstrates that there's a point where the US government is trying to silence the f- people just of people trying to have a revolution in a way that is both positive and affecting for all generations and this is something that is very powerful because this is the part where I go super political but it's something I have to bring it up because um, last year we have the George because last year, we have the George Floyd incident. And you have these peaceful protests, protests being disrupted by the police. Because the police um, basically just demonstrated the colors of not giving these people the right to basically have their freedom of speech for peaceful protests, spread their message. All because of the incident. And it's harrowing of the fact that the police... Basically, just didn't care, or the police just basically just did nothing to give them the right to have free speech and spread their voices. While, and then this is the stuff that gets on my nerves because while that happened, last month came the Capitol riot, and you could see how the police did absolutely nothing to prevent them from entering the Capitol. And it just demonstrates just how biased the government is going with giving people the right to express their opinions. And not only that, but you have this movie reflects a lot with today's political um, situations. And it's something that you can just watch and have this conversation with someone and be like, wow, you know what's incredible? That a movie that takes place in the 1960s in which an African-American is trying to bring positive change is being silenced by the same government that gives them the right to have free speech. It just demonstrates a lot of stuff that there is stuff that has been happening since the 60s that it hasn't been changed today, especially with last year, and especially with the Capitol riot. The one thing that I absolutely am mesmerized by the movie is both performances by um, Daniel Kaluuya and Lakeith Stanfield. Lakeith Stanfield plays Bill O'Neill, and Daniel Kaluuya plays Fred Hampton. Both of those guys just demonstrate just how incredible they are as two of the brightest actors of this generation. Daniel Kaluuya basically did an incredible performance in Get Out and also Widow's and, for, and also Queen, Queen and Slim. Where Lakeith Stanfield has incredible performances in movies such as Short Term 12 and Sorry to Bother You. And these two guys are basically, in my opinion, the future of film acting. And he's joining in that list because those are two incredible character actors. And in this movie, they basically stole the show in their raw emotional performance. You have, Dani- you have Daniel Kaluuya's Fred Hampton being this... Powerful figure that is bringing po- that is trying to bring positive change, but only to be silenced by the government. You have Lakeith Stanfield, a conflicting FBI informant who's feeling regret at the f- last few scenes of the movie because he knows how much, how much he's gonna regret it for the rest of life as being the guy that betrayed Fred Hampton. Kind of see the sense of they're both actors going full range on their roles and demonstrating just how incredible they are as actors. And in this movie, these two guys basically stole the show. And I believe that Daniel Kaluuya will potentially win the best actor in a supporting role. But I believe that he, since he should be in the leading role. But if that's not the case, Lakeith Stanfield should at least be nominated. But I believe that Daniel Kaluuya will win. Mark my words. I say watch this movie in theaters. But because of the COVID-19, I can I understand how people are very wary of the whole situation of watching a movie in movie theaters. But I believe that this is the movie that you should watch in movie theaters. Now, I'm gonna talk about a movie that I stumbled upon on an air on an air flight back home. I rented this movie because I read a lot of hype. And I read and I watched the trailer and I was intrigued by it. The movie I'm talking about is Promising Young Woman. The movie is the directorial debut of Emerald Fennell, in which she's one of the creators of, of the show Killing Eve. And it stars Carrie Mulligan in an incredible performance, one of, possibly one of my favorite performances of the decade, in which the decade already started. But the movie is basically about this woman who gets revenge after her friend commits suicide after being raped by uh, while she was in college and the school, and not doing anything about it. And it, it's about Carrie Mulligan's character trying to get revenge for the death of her best friend, but not just any kind of revenge. Do you see what I mean? This is a revenge story that is more psychological rather than physical. Physical revenge movies are basically like Bill, Django Unchained, Inglorious Bastards, and so on and so forth. And those three movies are basically Quentin Tarantino movies, but those Tarantino movies are perfect physical revenge movies because all they care about is one thing it's trying to basically be the hero in which it's either Uma Thurman and Killbill, Brad Pitt and in Inglorious Bastards, or Jamie Foxx and Django in which they're going thick and through. They're willing to kill anyone in order to either get revenge on the people that they screwed over for in this, or in this case, trying to put an end to, um, a pol- like, something's happening in their story and trying, to bring, and trying to bring justice in their own violent, bloody way. But this revenge story is completely different, in which she focuses on revenge in a psychological tone. She manipulates the people that got involved in her friend's demise psychologically and trying to bring out the point that in rape culture, there's an element where there's part where people are just going to brush it off. It's like, oh, no, we're just kids. It happens, you know. And then when she uses psychological um, situations such as manipulating them into getting drunk, um, manipulating people into um having these um believing that she's because this is the thing before the whole revenge starts she pretends that she's drunk in every like daily she goes to clubs she gets fake drunk she goes she acts like she's drunk and then manip- and then when she gets a guy to drop her home but in reality they just take her to their place she breaks out a psychological scarring in which they she waits. She stops acting drunk and just scares the bejesus out of them, by act by being normal and just saying like, "What are you doing? Like seriously, are you really gonna rape me?" and just traumatize them. And that's that's the length that she's going with. She's not about the character. Is not about physical revenge. It's psychological, and her progression in the rest of the movie is. She goes full. She has a master plan, and she executed with perfection. I was gonna say until the end, but I am not gonna spoil the movie because this movie is fantastic. But she, step by step, it's a psychological, it's a psychological revenge story, and for this movie to be perfectly captured on film. There are two elements that must be given praise. The first of which is Carrie Mulligan's performance as Cassie. Cassie is the tit is the main character of the movie, and Carrie Mulligan nails it out of the park. I feel like she was a chameleon in a movie. At one point, she goes from crying out from pain and suffering from the death of her friend. And then at the other moment she becomes this vindictive warrior that is trying to basically spread out the message psychologically and then at one point she goes super cold unemotional um no emotion whatsoever going on with no with no hassle f- goal oriented and scarring these people to the point of pure like depression and Carrie mulligan for me, gave the performance of her lifetime. And she's an incredibly underrated actress. Her work in films such as Shame, Drive, and, and Education are examples of the kind of actress that she is. But this movie, she kills it. And this is a, and her character is someone where she can be an incredible genius in a way that her, she basically perfected the role that the character is meant to be portrayed and you know how actors there are very few actors that excel these types of like chameleon type performances a perfect example for this is um she reminded me of love she reminded me a lot of Rosamond pike's portrayal of amy dunn in gone girl in which she in, in which both characters are more calculated and geniuses that are trying to bring out a point and they, know, and they know how to do it in a way that they can basically psychologically destroy them. But in this case, um, like, for example, in this case, Amy Dunn basically killed kill poor Neil Patrick Harris in Kong Girl. And I mean, come on. I know it's a spoiler, but it's, the movie was in 2014. I mean, if you haven't seen it, just watch it. But in this, but Carrie, Mullig- but Carrie Mulligan's Cassie, she may be calculated. She may feel cold-hearted. But her goal is to psychologically damage them, not have ways of trying to kill someone. She's just trying to bring out the point that this is a phenomenon that is still going on, which is rape culture. And I feel that if you really, really want to see an epic revenge story in a way that is both different, shocking, and jaw-dropping, you should check it out, Promising Young Woman. Currently I would say that rented now it's at 19.99 at the moment but it's I'll tell you this it's worth the watch and it's worth the payment because the that movie it will leave you it will leave you shocked it will leave you surprised it will leave you in a state where you're questioning what the hell did I just watch and you will and it will leave you mesmerized especially with the ending and Emerald Fennell did an incredible job as director. And this is, a movie, this is her film debut as well. And I feel that she nailed it. And I believe that she could win a lot of awards for her directing job, possibly for writing. And to be honest, this is a great way to start her career. So, watch Promising Young Woman. I'm telling you. You're going to be blown away. So there you have it, guys. This is the conclusion of the new episode of Pop Culture with the Captain. Please make sure to subscribe on Spotify. This is Captain Carlos Montalvo, signing off.